0: Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. BRICS and other developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort, And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finances, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. In 2005, a couple of months after taking up a diplomatic post at the U.S. Consulate General in Guangzhou, China, I had the opportunity to travel to Laos to assist my colleagues at the embassy there during an official visit. Up until that moment, Thailand was the only Southeast Asian destination that I had on my list of places to visit during my China tour. As it happened, I would have to overnight in Bangkok on the way in and out of Laos. I figured that would be enough as far as Southeast Asia was concerned. I was greatly mistaken, entranced by Thailand and Laos I instead became intrigued by the rest of the region and set out to explore it bit by bit. My efforts received a great boost in 2015 when my then employer took on a project that required extensive travel to the region. I ended up spending more time than I ever imagined in places like Saigon, Phnom Penh, Yangon, and Jakarta. With Islamic, Indian, Chinese, and indigenous cultures mixed in with British, French, Dutch, Spanish, and even American colonial influences, It is not surprising that the region is one of vast diversity. At the same time, there are common themes that unite the region, one of which is the dynamism of the local economies. Vietnam, for instance, has not seen annual GDP growth drop below 5% this entire century, although of course that could change due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This dynamism is intrinsically linked to Southeast Asia's rise as an alternative manufacturing destination for international companies that want to shift or diversify production away from China. In addition to their competitive costs, economies in Southeast Asia are not saddled by the geopolitical pressures that weigh on their neighbor to the north and also offer interesting domestic markets in their own right. Today, we focus on an issue that lies squarely at the intersection of business and law, intellectual property. This topic will allow us to explore not only the momentous economic shifts that are taking place across Southeast Asia, but also how different legal traditions approach critical challenges. To talk with us about intellectual property rights in Southeast Asia, we are privileged to have with us Geetha Kandia, an attorney at CAS, a Malaysia-based IP firm with offices in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, Myanmar, and Vietnam. In addition to being admitted to the British and Malaysian bars, Geetha is a registered IP agent in Singapore and Malaysia. She joins us today from Kuala Lumpur. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me over.
0: It is my pleasure. Um, I'm unfortunately flying solo today. My co-host Jonathan is not able to join us. Um, But in any case, let's dive in. And before we go any further, could you please help us define Southeast Asia? As I just mentioned, it's it's a very diverse region, and I would imagine that there is at least a little bit of um, debate regarding where the borders of of Southeast Asia uh, lay exactly. So if you could could give us at least your own definition, that would be great.
1: Thanks. Uh, It's very fortunate that you have been to Asia and you've been to many countries in Southeast Asia. I studied in the UK for four years and explaining to people where Malaysia is was really interesting. The easiest way to explain where Malaysia is was explaining where tourist destinations were, which is Singapore and Thailand. Um, Southeast Asia is countries, a group of countries that's below China, and they are to the east of the Indian subcontinent and northwest to Australia and New Zealand. So it's, that's, and then that is why it's called Southeast Asia. It's the south of China and the eastern part of the Indian subcontinent. It has um, many islands including Indonesia and Philippines and it also has mainland and Indo-Chinese countries which connected to China. So, Southeast Asia, as you rightly mentioned Fred, is very much uh, based on countries that are developing, most of them are developing countries and they are the third largest economy in Asia. And that is why a lot of companies, even before the COVID-19, were already looking at parking their production houses or even their headquarters in Southeast Asia to represent Asia Pacific. Southeast Asia is also the seventh largest economy in the world. Their population can't be disregarded as a group of countries. There are 10 countries in Southeast Asia. This group of countries have 655 million population. The total GDP of Southeast Asia is 3.3 trillion US dollars. So, Southeast Asia, or ASEAN, uh, in this region we call it SEA, SEA or ASEAN. Um, They represent 10 countries, and that is Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, And then some countries in Indochina, which is Vietnam, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, and we have Brunei as well. So these are the 10 countries that are considered Southeast Asia.
0: That is indeed a very, very diverse group of countries. And anyone who's had the opportunity to to, to travel in the region would, would be aware of that. You're talking about different languages, different cultures, different religions at the same time i think that there are as i mentioned in my introduction i do think that there are some some unifying threads and when companies refer to southeast asia as a, as a region as an entity there there has to be some some logic behind that so but before but before we do that with with um Let's look a little bit at those, at those differences. Um, so perhaps with a, with a specific focus on their legal systems, could you just tell us a little bit about the diversity of the region and how uh, the countries in Southeast Asia differ from one another and what that means for businesses that, that go into those markets?
1: That's a very good question. It is, although there's a lot of similarities in terms of culture and traditions, um, and behavior of the people in Southeast Asia that the legal system is different uh, in, in groups and, and that really is very historical it's based on which country colonized the specific Southeast Asian countries so for example we have the British colonies which is Singapore, Brunei and Malaysia, they follow common law as per the UK system and that means that they, although they have statutes, the court when they make decisions based on the statutes, the decisions of the court actually carry weight, carry weight, and that serves as precedent. Whereas in some countries like Thailand, for instance, they follow civil law, whereas it's very much statutory based, um, similar to China, which is also civil law, and the based decisions on codified statutes, as opposed to adjudicated cases. Um, And then you have Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, which also follow statutory law, uh, and they follow the French legal system, uh, because historically as well, the French were in these countries. Myanmar is unique. They used to follow the British legal system, and in 1970s, that changed, uh, and they have their own legal system now as well. So it's it's a range of civil law, uh, statutory-based, and common law, um, which is basically based on precedent that courts decide. And this very much goes into our intellectual property court cases and this is how they are decided as well. That is just a,
0: a fascinating array, really, of, of legal systems. And of course, that means that whenever we are talking about Southeast Asia, we, we have to caveat that, that discussion by, by pointing out, as you very, very eloquently did, that we are dealing with systems that that have their origins in in a variety of traditions. Um, That that said, um, to to the extent that it is possible to generalize, could you give us an overview on the state of intellectual property rights protection in Southeast Asia?
1: Southeast Asia is extremely interesting. In Singapore, being in the group of 10 countries, 10 developing countries, creates that diversity in the intellectual property protection system in Southeast Asia. Because of Singapore, you have an extremely developed system. Uh, You have in the intellectual property office of Singapore, which is constantly challenging itself to be the best in the world. And they are considered to have the gold standard of IP protection, thanks to a very active and innovative IP office. In fact, you may know, Fred, that um, the... But the person that heads uh, the World Intellectual Property Office has been selected from Singapore, Mr. Darren Chung. He used to be the chief executive of the Intellectual Property Office in Singapore, and he was he recently won the nomination to head the World Intellectual Property Office. That itself signifies how advanced Singapore is and how their personnel are trained to be world leaders. So you have Singapore, which is, has an extremely developed intellectual property system, and then you have mid-range systems. So mid-range being Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines and Thailand. They're all catching up to what Singapore is but they're still far behind. Many of these intellectual property offices only recently started having online filing for instance. All the previous filing of documents or prosecution of patents, trademarks, copyright were done manually, manual applications and only recently uh, they proceeded to online filing which is very fortunate considering that now With what's happening with the pandemic and everything pretty much online, uh, that saves most of these countries to still manage their intellectual property offices, even though there is a lockdown or restricted movement. Then we have uh, countries like Myanmar, which is far off, very far off from where Singapore is, where Malaysia and Indonesia and the other countries are. Myanmar only recently enacted its intellectual property laws. And that means that prior to 2017, uh, there there was only cautionary notices being filed to protect intellectual property rights. If any company had technology, that they, they wanted protection in, in Myanmar, or grants that needed protection, these were all published in the newspaper so that the public are aware of this intellectual property rights. There was no legal statute, so no statutory law to help intellectual property owners to have rights, very clear rights. Um, And that's what Myanmar was until they enacted their laws recently. Even though the laws have been enacted in Myanmar, they haven't been enforced. And we have been waiting for two years now for the laws to be enforced. But it has been quite political and it's been a lot of delay on that end. And now with the pandemic and all the countries have bigger fires to put out, I guess it will be further delayed. And the other thing about Southeast Asia is, although there's varying levels of development or intellectual property protection system in the country, the one thing that they do share is that they have a harmonized system compared to where the rest of the world is. So, and what I mean by that is that they have caught up with the World intellectual property treaties, um, and they have signed the Patent the Cooperation Treaty. So many countries, in fact, all the countries except for Myanmar are members of the TCP system. Um, Malaysia was the last or penultimate country that joined the Madrid system. So before this, all the countries were members except for Malaysia and Myanmar. And Malaysia recently, in December last year, joined the Madrid Protocol System. So international trademarks can also enter Malaysia through the Madrid protocol system. So right now, all the countries in Southeast Asia have caught up and are harmonized in the, in the sense that foreign companies and foreign parties can protect their intellectual copyrights through the existing international systems available, all except for Myanmar.
0: That's very interesting. It's, it's good to see, obviously, from, from the perspective of, uh, our international clients. It's it's good to see how the countries in the region for the most part are, are looking to improve their IPR protection and, and harmonize their, the, their, their systems. Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm sure that there are considerable challenges, even though I got to spend quite a bit of time doing work in the region. Most of it was it helping a local, um, Local suppliers uh, for our, our clients. Local suppliers helping them uh, pr- protect their 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 facilities against intellectual property theft. I didn't really get a chance to to do some of the enforcement work that I did in in China and other and other places. So. Uh, I can only imagine what, what those challenges must, must look like. Could you tell t- talk to us a little bit about that, uh, what it looks like when you're actually trying to uh, work with law enforcement uh, to take action against counterfeiters, what it looks like if you have to, for example, go to court to try to stop someone from infringing on your trademark? It's uh, Not easy in
1: Southeast Asia. So it's a very relevant question in terms of How is enforcement, proceedings done in Southeast Asia. For foreign international companies, it becomes crucial, actually, for them to not to wait to enter the countries. The cases and the challenges that they have in Southeast Asia is that they enter the country and then they look at protecting the mark. And it is very risky in Southeast Asian countries because many countries exercise the first-to-file system for trademarks especially, and that means that if they do not file their marks first, we have hijackers, we have trademark supporters. So many of the challenges is trying to negotiate to have that trademark transferred, even for a price, uh, and many clients are willing to buy the trademark because it's just a lot more easier compared to going to court. It has the cost system in many of these countries excluding Singapore and Malaysia, which is quite fast, and they have timelines in which court hearings must be held. Uh, A battle in court can take up to three years in many countries. So apart from the timeline, and then you have the cost, it's a lot easier to negotiate the mark back. That's what we find happening quite often in Southeast Asia um, in terms of foreign companies, one from Northern America and Europe entering. For enforcement-wise, the system is there. So all, as mentioned before, all the, all the countries except for Myanmar have IP legislation drawn out. So if you go through the system and there is evidence to show who the true owner is, regardless of whether it's a patent or trademark or copyright, and you run through the system, there is avenues and there's relief that can be sought. It's a question of time period, as it does take three years, at least in some of these countries, to battle it out. Uh, the trademark and the written prosecution process may also be unhelpful in some countries. For instance, in Indonesia, it is ideal to take a cancellation action only after you have filed a trademark application. Only then the court even sees that you are an aggrieved party and you actually have a cause of action against the infringing party. So then the whole prosecution process of the trademark comes into effect. So the patent and the trademark prosecution process is also quite lengthy in some of these countries. But it is a very interesting question for it, especially since that many countries will be looking at entering Southeast Asia or considering Southeast Asia with their manufacturing plant because of what's happening with the pandemic currently.
0: A lot of what you're describing reminds me of what it was like to do this kind of work in China. You know, for example, what you were talking about it being more advisable in some cases to to just purchase uh, a trademark from the the, the illegal registrant uh, i i can i can certainly relate to that and you know you know when you're dealing with uh, say an american or or european client it can it can sometimes be very difficult for them to to uh to understand you know why they, why it is that the the smart business decision is for them to pay money to, to, to acquire what in their mind is their own property. But, um, that's, you know, that that's just the, the, the reality of, of working in that market. If you, if you become a little bit too, um, uh, you know, if, 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 if you're not willing to see that reality, sometimes you, you just end up, uh, hurting your business, uh, even more. Um, of course, uh, as lawyers, what 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 we want, of course, is is to, to to try to avoid these problems in the in the first place. Um could you share some best practices for, for effective IPR protection in Southeast special sorry in Southeast Asia, especially with a view to, to just avoiding problems in the first place? Uh some some preventive approaches that perhaps could could be of use to to foreign businesses in the region.
1: Sure. In Southeast Asia, because of what was mentioned, that many of these countries, for uh, the trademark system, is first to file. Uh, for that purpose, it's actually a lot easier, quicker, and cheaper as well. IP protection in Southeast Asia isn't very expensive, so having their IP protected as soon as they see Southeast Asia being a potential market for them is very important. Um, earlier, we were talking about how many companies hijack trademarks or do trademark squatting. Uh, And the easiest way is actually to buy it back. That's not even necessary if registration or protection is done first. So the first thing would be actually to look at protecting in Southeast Asia. And it's ironic, Fred, because as we see what's happening in China and in the world currently, we are noticing many companies already taking that action. We are filing more either patents or trademarks in Indonesia, in Thailand, in Vietnam especially, and you have rightly pointed it out that Vietnam hasn't had a low GDP for a very long time. It's one of the emerging countries that has a rapid development in terms of economy. That that might change with what is happening in terms of uh, COVID-19, but many many companies are already aware, and I guess it's in their business continuity plan, Uh, and their risk mitigation plan to look at Southeast Asia. So we are, are filing a lot more since before the COVID. The other thing to look at is the diversity of languages. In Southeast Asian countries, even though there are 10 Southeast Asian countries in Southeast Asia, in each country, there are more than one language that is commonly spoken. Let's take Malaysia and Singapore, for instance. There are three main languages in both countries. There's Malay, there's english and there's chinese and in some the minority languages as well tamil in malaysia so you can see how there's diversified languages and brand owners should definitely do a linguistic check to ensure that their brands are not vulgar or offensive in the language spoken in that country other than that they might also need to look at should they protect their brand in the local language for example, in Yangon, should they register the English version of their brand and the Burmese version of their brand? That's something pretty much their you know, business team has to decide and speak to local experts and the local intellectual property lawyers. Other than that, is online protection. As we all know, uh, work from home is going to have everyone glued to their laptops or computers. That then just means that exposure online is very, very high. So social media accounts, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, their local version, if that's part of their marketing strategy, needs to be secured at an earlier stage. And agreements, local agreements need to be tightly drawn up and really taking care of their needs. For example, one of the clauses that we highly recommend is having an arbitration clause and ensuring that arbitration is other than either done in Malaysia which has a very established arbitration center called the Asian International Arbitration Center, or oh, in Singapore, which has the WIPO Arbitration and Mediation Center. So that helps businesses, foreign companies, regardless of where they are in Northern America or in Europe, ensure that when disputes arise, they actually have a very good avenue to resolve the dispute with a neutral party. And lastly is ensuring that all counterfeit measures are taken, especially online. This means that all online stores in Southeast Asia are monitored and when there is any sense of infringement, a uh, takedown notice is, is approached. There must be strategies in place along those lines. So that's what I would advise in terms of IP, best best practices for the ASEAN region.
0: You bring up an excellent point regarding, regarding languages. And and one thing that I've personally experienced with my own work has been the difficulties that arise sometimes with English marks. Um, I I can think specifically of some work that uh, I did for, for a client, uh, in, in Thailand through, through, um, I was sort of inheriting, uh, the, the file. So I was sort of stuck with a different law firm. Otherwise, uh, if, if it had been my own case, I would have worked with you guys from the beginning. But um, unfortunately I was, I was picking up what, what someone else started. But um, I, I do remember, you know, be- being it, these issues that would come up with uh, for, if it had been a registration in, in a, in a country where, where there were higher, Levels of, of English proficiency, a lot of it wouldn't have come up, I'm sure. But in, in the specific context of, of Thailand, there were there were some issues, you know, some some issues involving similarity. That um, now, when I get to analyze things uh, more more objectively, uh, I, I realize that in fact, yes, if, if for 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 a non-native uh, speaker, it might not be as 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 easy to 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 recognize that. This mark and that mark are actually quite different uh, in a way that that, uh, that a native speaker or a native native level speaker would. Just in the same way that if I was looking at two marks in in Thai or or Vietnamese, uh, I, I would probably miss uh, a, a lot of that nuance. So before we say goodbye, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what your firm does? just so people who are looking at at doing business in the region and might have some some related IP questions, just just so they understand uh, a little bit better, what is it that you guys do?
1: Right. So CAS itself has been in the intellectual property field for 21 years. We started out in Malaysia and very soon opened an office in Singapore, seeing that there's a lot of demand for, foreign and local companies to protect their intellectual property rights in Singapore. And now we are in Indonesia, in the other countries as well, Thailand, Myanmar, Vietnam. Very interesting. We do do everything to do with intellectual property. So we look at all rights. We have a large patent team with eight executives who are very much specialized in their own field. So we have a mechanical engineer, ICT personnel, um, biotech, and chemical graduate. And um, uh, petrochemical as well, in mechanical engineering. So in Malaysia, we want to talk one of the larger intellectual property firms that has a in-house patent team. Uh, you might know this, spread, but some people outsource the patent drafting to other countries. But in Malaysia, we don't. We have the team internally. So on that end, we give very high-level advice, top-quality advice, and everything is done. Um, with double checking system, that's for the patent team. For the trademark team, also fairly large uh, for Malaysian standards. And uh, so the headquarters in Malaysia, we pretty much do anything to do with intellectual property, and this includes agreements related to utilization of intellectual property rights, monetization of intellectual property rights. So we look at joint venture agreements, technology transfer agreements, valuation, intellectual property valuation, we also look at franchising. We advise quite heavily on franchising, not just in Malaysia, but in Southeast Asia as well. And then we support uh, counsel when it comes to litigation. So for dispute resolution, uh, we ourselves do not go to court, but we uh, we provide litigation support. We work with the clients pretty much uh, from end to end, from ideation, from them coming up with the idea to them commercialising it and them handling the dispute. Uh, and we we'll, going to be one of the larger companies in Southeast Asia. Well Gita, this has been uh, a
0: fantastic conversation and and certainly a very informative one, uh, even for someone like me who's who's actually spent quite a bit of time in, in the region. So so I'd like to to thank you for for your time. And and before um, before we let you go, um, you know, in addition to the information and knowledge that we're trying to, to present. Through our conversations, we also like to take it a, a step further and share with, with our listeners uh, things that we're reading and listening to that are uh, helping us uh, better understand uh, the world. Um, so on that note, um, I'd like to ask you, what are you reading?
1: Sure, Fred. Um, I do like reading various novels and also business and um, interesting pieces, which is the recent one being Daniel Pink. I'm not sure whether you've read it. It's A Whole New Mind. Well, he comes up with amazing books, and A Whole New Mind was very interesting in the sense that, uh, and this was really much before the COVID started, and I think it plays a big part now as well. He talks about why right-brainers will rule the world. So um, in Daniel Pink's book, a whole new mind. He talks about how Asia was very much in abundance and everything was outsourced to Asia and that was when the Western countries, being America and Europe, had to differentiate themselves. It can't just be we do everything quick and we do everything fast because everything was outsourced to Asia. So he then brought into light about how it's not just about logical thinking and analytical thinking anymore. It's going to be about right-brained thinking, so right side of the branding exercise to stand out among your clients, to stand out among the community, to stand out in your industry in general. So he then talks about anything you do, you need to have a design crafted out, you need to have a story crafted out, you need to have empathy and EQ in all of your messages Uh, and that's when you actually stand out and of course during the whole book, he talks and bring examples of companies that have done it. talks about Apple, about how it's all the story behind, behind the iPad. It's all the story behind the iPod, the MP3 players. Uh, and, the, and the design behind it as well. It's not so much the function of the product, but the right brain um, skills. So that's a extremely good book. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. And I really enjoyed that one. Thank you for that
0: recommendation. We'll certainly be providing a link to, to that when we publish this podcast. Um, I'd just like to mention one book that I'm reading at the moment. Um, it's called Into the Raging Sea, uh, written by Rachel Slade. And uh, superficially, at least, the the book um, that describes an incident that happened uh, a few years ago when a cargo ship was uh, I was traveling from Jacksonville to Puerto Rico, uh, basically uh, sank because of a hurricane. The book really is about a lot more than that. It, it helps to explain the somewhat tenuous economic links that keep the, 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 the world running and how economic imperatives um, can sometimes lead to to companies taking excessive risks that that end up as they did in in this case with a considerable amount of human lives lost and, and and obviously the loss of the of the vessel and the cargo. So if you're looking for something a little different, uh, most of what we mentioned here has to do with with politics and and laws. So this is slightly different, but th- there's definitely some connections there. Um, well, on, on that note, Keitha, uh, I'd like to once again thank you for, for your time. It's been great having you on. We certainly look forward to, to a repeat, and we also look forward to talking to, to some of, of your colleagues uh, at some point uh, as we uh, focus perhaps on, on some of countries specifically. So, so thank you once again.
1: Thank you as well, Fred. Thank you for your time. It, was, it has been a fun experience.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode we look forward to connecting with you on social media to discuss developments in global law and business and tune in next week for another episode we'll see you then